Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. 25 years ago, on September 29th, a certain bet was resolved, a bet between Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich, two names you might have heard on this show. And this bet is an important part of modern intellectual history in terms of the way we think about resources. Now, it's often called in, I'd say, inter, inner intellectual circles, uh, the bet. And You'll hear more about it as the show goes on, but basically the idea was one side, Ehrlich, was betting on the premise that resources will progressively become more scarce, that the price of a certain basket of resources would inevitably go up. And Julian Simon, who was challenging that on the idea that resources are ultimately human creations that have no practical limit, bet that those prices would go down. And this was a fascinating event and Ehrlich lost the bet, and there's been lots of controversy about it ever since, but it's a really important event in, in modern intellectual history. So we've brought on an expert on the, uh, on the bet and a great friend of, of this show, Pierre de Rocher, uh, I think one of everyone's all-time favorite guests, to discuss the bet as he's written a, a very long and interesting uh, paper. I should emphasize the very, very interesting. It is, it is long as well, but it's, it's definitely more interesting than long. Anyway, so we'll have Pierre on on the other side to discuss the bet. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined once again by maybe the record holder for most appearances on Power Hour outside CIP, except that he's now part of CIP as a, you know, one of our senior fellows, so Pierre Desrochers, uh, perhaps better known, at least at this point in history, as Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Toronto and author of The Locavores Dilemma. Pierre, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right. So why are you here, Pierre? What, what is coming up that requires your insight and knowledge? Well, we're about to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the closing date of the famous bet between uh, economist uh, Julian Simon and biologist uh, Paul Ehrlich. So uh, this is something that needs to be discussed and that people need to be reminded of again because uh, as someone who teaches uh, 20 years old, I do a little survey every time I teach my energy course and I ask the kids, Paul Ehrlich, um, none of them have. Who among you has heard of Julian Simon? They sort of look at me like, what, who? And uh, I believe that this is, uh, considering that in my department, many of the kids learn about sustainable development, this is a bet and these are conflicting visions that they shouldn't uh, know more about. So uh, September 29, 2015 is actually the uh, 25th anniversary of the end of the bet. And I'm doing all I can with you and through other means to remind people of uh, that particular, of uh, the bet of the century and the social sciences. All right. So what is... 
what is the bet? Take us take us back to when it started. Yes. Well, you have to go back basically to when uh, Paul Ehrlich and uh, Julian Simon hit the scene. I mean, there's been this long-standing uh, debate among uh, human societies, and it's probably as old as if I to Confucius to Plato, who were sort of debating aspects of this. But uh, what happened in the early uh, 1960s is that there is the rise of the modern environmental movement, or actually its incarnation, and uh, so uh, Rachel Carson first hit the scene in 18, 1962 with um, Silent Spring. But then a little-known professor of biology at Stanford named Paul Ehrlich writes a popular book that is published in 1968, which is called The Population Bomb. And at first, the book doesn't get all that much publicity, but Ehrlich is a very good communicator, uh, not only by academic standards, but by any standards. And through some connections, he ends up on The Tonight Show with uh, Johnny Carson. And for younger members of your audience or non-Americans, Johnny Carson was the predecessor of uh, Jay Leno, who's now been replaced. Uh, who would that be? Uh, the equivalent of you know, Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel these days. And he makes a splash, and he becomes a celebrity overnight. And uh, his message is, uh, you know, vintage uh, eco-catastrophism on steroids. You know, he tells you, well, the battle to feed humanity is over. Hundreds of millions of people will die soon. Uh, if I was a betting man, I would say well, there won't even be an England in 2000. And Johnny Carson and the American media uh, really eat up the message. And of course, you have another side of this issue, which is that uh, people are not only uh, problem creators, they're also problem solvers. And the person who emerges in the 1970s America to convey that message most effectively is an economist named Julian Simon. And he basically tells him, well, put up or shut up. And, you know, I won't uh, bet with you because you're the one who said you would. If I was a betting man, I would bet that there won't even be in England in 2000. And he says, well, that's kind of a stupid bet. But if you really believe what you say, here's my offer to you. Uh, if you believe that more people are going to be a problem, if you believe that resources are finite, select any resources that you want as long as they're not uh, controlled by government, as long as, you know, you have a price system and these things are freely traded on the market for any period of time you want over uh, one year. And so Ehrlich says, well, okay, uh, I'll jump on this before any greedy people want that. And so um, he uh, consults uh, two of his longtime research associates, uh, one of whom might actually be known by uh, younger people today, John Aldrin, because he, he was basically the main uh, science advisor to Barack Obama. And they come back to uh, Simon and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We will select five commodities, and our commodities are copper, chrome, nickel, tin, and tungsten for a period of 10 years. And we will, in theory, buy uh, $1,000 of them on the, uh, on the price that we would buy them on the commodity market uh, on September 29, uh, 1980. And if the price has gone up on September 29, 1990, a decade later, uh, we will pay... Uh, you will pay us the difference. If the price goes down, that means that Simon's outlook, that of an economist, is that human creativity will actually find a way around scarcity. Then we will pay, if the price goes down, we will pay you that uh, during 1980 and 1990, the world population grew by something like 800 million people. Uh, China began to take off. Uh, economic recovery proceeded. 
you know, Western Europe, North America did relatively well during that time period. And yet the price of all five commodities went down and sometimes radically. So nickel went down a little bit, 3.5%, but tungsten went down, uh, the price of tungsten in real prices factoring in inflation went down by 57% and tin by 72%. And so it so happened that in October 1990, Paul Ehrlich uh, wrote a check to Julian Simon to the amount of uh, $576.07 and put it in an envelope and didn't write anything else, never acknowledged that Simon was right, and uh, signed the check, framed it, and uh, kept it in his office. Did he cash it? No, he never cashed it. He framed it and kept it on a wall in his office, apparently. And uh, you can go online today and uh, you see a picture of the check that Ehrlich wrote uh, to Simon. Now, we're going to discuss the aftermath of this because, as might be expected, uh, one side of the debate has not admitted suffering a fatal blow. So we'll get to that. But but before that, let's discuss the different... uh, philosophies that you've alluded to and I'll, I'll give mm-hmm. my classification then you can use yours and, and your you have a review of, of of a book on this called the book is called the bet I, I didn't ask you before has has this review been published no it hasn't been published yet I'm struggling a bit with that at the moment it turned my original goal was writer from that up being 23,000 words, which is a bit of a problem in academia these days. But uh, the review was written by uh, a professor of environmental studies at uh, Yale University, who is uh, trying essentially to strike a middle ground between two philosophically incompatible uh, positions, or uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word philosophical. Well, yeah, 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 but I, I want to I I hold that. We'll get to that in a little yes. bit, but I want to I uh, get to the positions, but just how I, so you in that paper, which I get to see, because I guess I'm special and you, the listeners don't yet until you you find out. Well, you're a senior fellow, right? So that comes with privileges. Yeah, that's, that's right. You know, I I bestow these, these uh, honors and I'm like the king. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, that's going to be quoted out of context someday. I'm, I'm sure (laughs) someday, someday, I mean, next week on Twitter. Anyway, um, with Please. with the uh, in in that paper, you know, you describe these different schools. Yes. The one you call resource ship, and then the other you call scarcity. Depletion. De- depletionism, De- rather. Sorry, depletionism. Yeah. I, I I just for what it's worth, I like I I think of it as um, you know basically resource you know resource creation yeah. and resource parasitism. Um, so that that's yeah. how I think of it. Uh, so people can sort of you know, run between those terms, but talk about what these different perspectives uh, assert and then why you agree with one versus the other. Okay. Well, basically, uh, let me put it this way. Ehrlich is a biologist. Most people who share his view of the world, at least um, if you're an academic who writes about sustainability, come from a similar background. I mean, I'm a geographer. I often have arguments with my colleagues. Colleagues, well, you know, they're geographers, but they're really landscape ecologists or they're physical geographers. And basically, their view is that humans are not different than other animals. Uh, you know, we there is only so much we can extract from our environment. If you're a tiger, let's say the tiger population in one particular environment is limited by the number of preys, the amount of food that is available. And if somehow the population of uh, predators, of tigers or whatever, exceeds what the environment can sustain, well, the population will crash. 
And basically, that's the view that has motivated people who have shared Ehrlich perspective for a very long time. You know, resources are finite. We only have one planet. There are only so many things to go around. And especially in the context of non-renewable resources, you know, petroleum, coals, minerals, what have you, uh, create them. Uh, you know, we have to take what's available, and once they're gone, they're gone. And so obviously you cannot sustain a society on non-renewable resources, and so you have to scale back, you have to control population numbers, and you've got to learn within the li- you've got to learn to live within the limits of renewable resources. On the other hand, you have economists like Simon who will tell you, well, no, humans are not like other animals. We kind of evolved beyond that. Among other things that make us different is the fact that we trade physical goods. Uh, no other species does that. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at, let's say, uh, ape population, ape population, gorillas, chimpanzees, they might trade services, you know, grooming for protection. But no other species trades physical good, you know, one type of physical good for another type of uh, physical good. And new things the way humans do. So, for example, beavers will mix uh, mud and logs to create dams, but that's the only thing that they do. But humans have evolved that ability to combine and recombine things in all sorts of new ways. And so we always come up with new technologies, which are essentially the result of combinations of previous technologies. And the more technologies you create, the more technologies you can create. And so because humans are different, you cannot apply this basic um, carrying capacity uh, metaphor uh, to human societies. And so on the one hand, you have biologists and people like them who believe that uh, human societies are absolutely constrained by their environment, and you have another perspective, which today is mostly associated with economists, but historically, uh, you had people from other disciplines who obviously believe that in that perspective too, will tell you, well, humans are different, and humans can actually invent their way or innovate their way around uh, material scarcity, and ultimately, resources are not uh, you're not limited by what is in the ground uh, you, because you can always invent new ways of doing things and new things to do. And once you've unleashed technology, once you have a societal context in which uh, technological innovation is rewarded, then there are no real limits to uh, improvements in human welfare and uh, economic growth. So people have uh, probably have listened to the show, have heard versions of this, and hopefully everyone has read or We'll now go read Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and in, in that, particularly in Chapter 8, I discuss how I think of, of the resource issue, which is a very similar issue. But just one thing to note, and, and we'll get into the specific commodities, but that most of what we consider natural resources are not naturally resources. They're naturally mm-hmm. useless or naturally inaccessible. And I remember in... in it's uh, stuff. It's stuff out there, yes. Yeah, it's yeah. stuff. And and I remember uh, economist George Reisman has the point that, you know, if 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 resources are just raw materials reshaped for human benefit, then from that perspective, the earth is just a giant ball of matter and energy that's a potential resource. And I remember once I, I learned to think of it that way, my, my whole view of the globe changed from, oh, there's these tiny bits of, quote, resources to the whole thing can be a resource if, if we need it. And, you know, we... But then there's the question, and I'll, I'll ask this to you, how do we... I mean, how does the price system 
uh, basically determine what resources we use at what times, because this is going to govern the whole issue of, of the price of these commodities and why they go down, even though Ehrlich expects them to go up. Yeah. Well, the thing about the price system that a lot of uh, biologists and uh, people like Ehrlich do not understand is that it's essentially a feedback mechanism. So humans are the only species that trade good, but the way we shape our actions in a market economy is not completely, but mostly determined by the price system. And ultimately, what people want are not resources per se, but services. You know, they want to achieve things. I want to talk to you today. Well, there are different ways we can do that. So we're using a landline at the moment, but we could have used Skype if that worked a bit better. A couple of decades ago, we would have used a system that was based on uh, copper wires. Today, it's probably fiber optics or signals out uh, in the atmosphere. So what we're really interested in in the end is uh, the service of talking to each other or whatever other needs uh, we might. The way we uh, achieve our goals can vary. There are many alternatives around us. And what the price system tells us is, well, you know, what is the most sensible, what is the most cost-effective way of achieving that service? Now, in terms of uh, resources, well, at some point, if uh, a particular resource becomes available, let's say that um, you know, the Chinese economy takes off uh, one morning, as it happened a few decades ago. Uh, well, suddenly, well, they will need more steel, they will need more coal, they will need more other resources. And so in the short run, yes, the price of, let's say, steel uh, will go up. But does that mean that there is a finite quantity of steel in the world? And will the price go up forever until we run out of it? Well, no. What history teaches us and what Economics 101 teaches us, too, is that once the price signal is sent, every act, every economic actor who's somehow involved with steel production uh, will get the message to produce more of the stuff, uh, to produce it more efficiently. Uh, consumers of steel will learn, if the price goes up, uh, to use it more efficiently. And people will invent substitutes, uh, other types of alloys, other types of materials that can substitute for steel. And so in the long run, or short, medium, long run, what history teaches us is that once the price signal is sent in the economy that, let's say, there's more demand for steel, all these things, you know, producing uh, more of the stuff, using it more efficiently, and uh, developing substitutes will be triggered by that price system. And in short order, the price of the resource will go down because the resource will have been less scarce. New stuff will have been created, better uses of it will have been made, substitutes will have come along. So the price system is something that does not exist. You know, when people talk about the market as the law of the jungle, um, that's the worst metaphor you can come up with. There's nothing like that in nature. And uh, this is something that Simon understood. And this is something that the depletionist or, uh, you know, the earth as a finite thing or resources as being finite never understand. Ultimately, resources are created by the always renewable and ever expanded, expendable uh, human intellect. Yeah, the, just want to emphasize the the concept. Uh, another one I found really helpful from Simon, probably the most helpful one I read, The Ultimate Resource, or The Ultimate Resource mm -hmm. 2 is the most up-to-date. You can read that for free online. We'll, we'll link to it in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, it's just the, the, the idea you said about the, the service. That it's We don't really want resources. We want services. And it's this primitive uh, but understandable equation between the service that we're after and we pay for, and mm -hmm. then the uh, material or process or technology by which we happen to get it. And if you track, 
if you just track the question of, well, what's going to happen to the particular way I get it? Will that become more expensive? Will there be more of that? Could that last a million years? You're totally missing the point. The point is, mm -hmm. can we create more and better services using the total of raw materials and human ingenuity on Earth? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is, is yes. And I think the tendency with any commodity is going to be that it's, it, it'll I mean, we don't have a free market in many ways, but it'll go down in price in part because people will find superior ways to do the same service. So if, you know, if iron ore went up insanely or something like that, you know, which isn't happening, we're finding better ways to get it. But then you would invest in doing something else. You'd ultimately get that very efficient. And then there wouldn't be as much demand for iron, just like the point about the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. Yes. Well, there is this great slide on the web. I'm sure you've seen it, but if you haven't linked it to your... Uh... Uh, to your audience. You know, the Cato Institute came up with that slide, I think, a couple of years ago. All the technologies that a smartphone have replaced. And, you know, you've got an old cassette player, you've got an old phone, you've got a recording device, and you've got... Imagine all the materials, because, again, if you're talking to people, you're, well, I'm middle-aged now, so I remember all the stuff that I used to do uh, 20, 25 years ago, uh, you know, even recording interviews when I was writing my doctoral dissertation and moving that to other people, moving a lot of papers and finding documentation. Today, a smartphone replaces something like, what, 20, 30 devices? And it's just a tiny amount of petroleum and silicon. And then a few other, again, the services that are provided by a smartphone today would have required a lot more resources uh, just a few decades ago. And again, the point is that uh, the value that is embedded, the, va the reason why your smartphone costs so much is because of the knowledge that's embedded in it. The price of the physical resources that went into it is fairly ridiculous compared to um, the resources, the physical resources that would have been required a couple of decades ago to get the same services. Yeah, although Mark Mills, who was on the, the last guest on the show, would, would certainly remind us that there's lots of resource use, particularly energy use, that we don't see uh, oh, that course. both went into manufacturing it and then... The, the oh, fair powers. enough, but you needed a lot of resources to manufacture all those other devices. Right, although there was no... There was, I mean, yes. in part, you know, none of those devices had the internet. Uh, well, exactly. Back, back then, so yeah, no, it is. A, I, I haven't seen that. We'll uh, oh, uh, we'll link to it, and uh, that. I'll email. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Email. Okay. So we have these. We have these two. Um, you know, dynamics which you can call depletionism or you know resource parasitism, parasitism, and then uh, resource ship or resource creation, and then so we have this bet. Um, which the people, you know, the, the believers in resource parasitism lose. Uh, and then there's a question of, of what happens in the meantime. So what do they say? And then that'll segue into uh, what does Paul Sabin of, of Yale say? Because this is somebody who was influenced by the bet. By, I mean, he wrote a book called The Bet. Uh, yes. Which I should say, I have not read. I've read him some interviews okay. with him and stuff. Well, I, I, I can summarize it for you, but perhaps okay. there are a few other points that I skipped that I should probably uh, spend a couple more minutes on, if you will allow me. Go for it. One standard view of, uh, let's say, the, the early or the depletionist crowd is that because resources are finite, 
Uh, if there are less of us around, we will be better off. So, you know, resources are like a pie. Let's say that uh, you've got four different tables and you've got the same pie on each table. Well, obviously, the table that has uh, two people, uh, two individuals eating the pie, uh, these two people will get a bigger share of the pie than on the table than, let's say, you have eight people uh, eating the same pie. So the standard thinking there is that, well, if there were less of us, there would be more stuff uh, to go around. But then what economists have tried to explain to people who believe that for uh, a couple of centuries is that, no, you cannot assume that a society with a smaller number of people will create all the stuff that a society with more people uh, will create. You cannot assume that a smartphone would have been created uh, if the earth had been peopled by, let's say, a billion people instead of uh, three or four or five or six or seven billion people, as was the case uh, in the last few decades. More brains will be more ways, more human brains will be more ways of thinking about stuff. And what matters to uh, one advantage that you get when you have more people to go around is that you've got a broader division of labor. And so, again, this is Economic 101, but to make sure that everyone understands, 100 people who each specialize in what they do best and trade with each other will create a lot more stuff than a hundred people who try to be self-sufficient. And so the more of us there are around, the more ideas people will have, the more they will be able to specialize in what they do best, and the more likely things like smartphone uh, will be developed. Because as a smartphone, very complex and widespread division of labor. So it's a fundamental mistake to assume that the stuff that we enjoy today uh, would have been available to people who said no to growth, who said no to a division of labor, and who believed that people would have been better off because there were less of them in a world of finite resource. Another common mistake from the early crowd is that they believe that, well, uh, and this was typical of the peak oil rhetoric, for example. I assume that your audience is familiar with that, or should I expand on this? No, you can, you, you can assume that. We've, had, well, we've okay. talked about it a bunch of times. Well, fair enough. So the idea is that, well, you've got deposits out there, but not all oil deposits are created equal. So there's the stuff that is easily accessible, and then as uh, you deplete it and you move to other deposits, uh, what economists call decreasing returns will set in. So meaning that the easy oil will go first, it's cheap, it will be easy to extract, but the more you move to more remote or deposits that are deeper underground or more difficult to reach, the more expensive... Uh, oil, for example, will become. But you could say the same about coal or any other type of resources. But if you look at human history, this is simply not true. And that's, again, because the depletionists forget that, yes, there is the quality of the physical deposit on one hand, but on the other is the technology and the knowledge that you have to extract the stuff from the ground. And so if you go back to when uh, the first oil well was drilled in the United States and uh, Western Pennsylvania over a century and a half ago, the oil, as far as I ran, correct me if I'm wrong here, was about 71 feet underground. But extracting it was very costly because the primitive technology that people had at the time was the kind of drilling that they used to look for brine, you know, salty water or the kind of take salt mines. And so extracting uh, good quality oil from 71 feet underground in 1859, 1860, was about as expensive as it would be a century and a half later to extract uh, oil from, let's say, two miles underground offshore in an, uh, you know, in an ocean somewhere. 
And so the quality of the deposit or the quality of the raw material in the ground is meaningless on its own if you don't factor in the type of technology that people have uh, at their disposal. And so again, it's another common mistake to believe that, well, of course, you know, well, right now oil is abundant and that's because we're skimming the cream on the top of the milk. But uh, that's, the, that's the wrong way to look at that. I mean, you must always keep in mind the type of technologies that uh, people have. And the other thing that's really annoying with the, the depletionist crowd is that they always tell you, well, history is insignificant. What you say now might have been true in the past, but the world is completely different today. There are new circumstances. Things are not the same. And if you look at, if you do some intellectual history on the topic, you see that this argument comes back every generation. You can never learn from the past. You can never learn from the past. And that gets us partly to the interpretation of uh, the bet that uh, people who still refuse to buy into, let's say, the Julian Simon or the resourceship vision has. So the standard replies to that are that, well, Ehrlich was right. He just got his timing wrong. You know, we're going to run out of stuff eventually, but he was just wrong about the date. So that's one way to look at that. Then the other thing uh, that some of these people will say is that, well, Simon got lucky. Because if you look at, uh, if you look take the same uh, commodities, but you look at another 10-year period, well, you would have uh, one year. Would, if you chop up the 20th century in, uh, in decades, uh, Simon would have lost more often than he would have won. And so obviously this shows that he just got lucky. But the point that people need to understand about the bet is that the context in which uh, Simon made it um, I won't get into uh, too much history, not to bore your readers, to, uh, your listeners too much, but by the 60s and the 70s, the depletionists, the Malthusians, for Thomas Robert Malthus, who basically said the same thing uh, two centuries before Ehrlich, uh, completely dominated the, the policy agenda. Uh, the joke in the 60s and the 70s is that you've got basically three organizations that stand against, let's call it the depletionist onslaught. You know, so again, Ehrlich is on Johnny Carson. You've got Jimmy Carter in the White House. You've got journalists to really eat up that stuff. Um, most people, if that was true for your, uh, for your age group, but in mine in grade school, we were showed studies about overpopulation, and then we would have global cooling, but that's another story. You've got three organized oppositions, if you will, to that view. Uh, the joke is that you've got the Kremlin, the Vatican, and a few free market think tanks. And that's because for all their flaws, uh, classical Marxists completely rejected uh, the Malthusian view. Uh, they did not believe in free markets, but uh, beginning with Engels and a few other people afterwards, the standard classical communist view was that Resource issues uh, is not a problem. You know, science, you come up with, a, science will find a way around scarcity. We will create stuff. So uh, old-fashioned Marxists did not believe in markets. They believed that central planning would deliver better results. But they would actually, uh, they, they, they rejected the Malthusian uh, scenario. And uh, credit needs to be given to some uh, classical Marxists in the early 1970s who were American academics in good standing who said, well, Ehrlich is not, his stuff doesn't make sense. As Marx and Engels argued and others, uh, science will find a way and we can go forward. Of course, we need to abolish capitalism, but uh, that's another issue. And you still have uh, people who are sort of, as I view them, and you might, uh, I mean, you've been more, you've been in touch with them, I believe. You, you still have a legacy of that today in the website like uh, Spiked in Great Britain, uh, which I liked a lot, not only because they publish me from time to time, but I view these people as sort of having inherited 
limited, at least some of that view that Malthusianism is nonsense and the human brain science can do that. Then the Catholic Church was also strongly opposed to the population control activists uh, for theological reasons, obviously. But Simon came from a third which was mostly based uh, in the context of the United States at the places like uh, the American Enterprise Institute and then later on the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, who essentially uh, made the points uh, that I've been arguing. So, you know, uh, the human mind and the price system uh, will take care of things. And so the point that Simon is trying to make in the 1980s is that uh, Simon is uh, originally a professor of marketing, but he's someone who, because he's, well, I wouldn't say he's not very popular, but in order to uh, get along with his colleagues in his department, teaches probability and statistics. So he's not a formal statistician by training, but he's obviously very good at that. He teaches that stuff. And he's also a serious poker player. And so the way I, I understand his bet and what he did is that, okay, nobody wants to listen to me. Everybody is eating up that honest uh, stuff. How do I grab public attention? And how do I entice someone like Ehrlich to actually address what I want to say? And the fact he uses commodity prices. But really, if you go into his theory and if you look at what economists have said, um, Commodity prices are actually not the best indicator to understand uh, what he wants to, what he wants to convey, because obviously commodity markets are cyclical; they might go up, they might go down. But Simon always insists on two things, among other things: always looked at the long run. So yes, there will be commodity fluctuations, and in any given period of time, he knew he could have lost, even though the odds were in his the odds were in his favor. But if you look at any uh, commodity prices over the longest term possible they always go down, despite the fact that uh, they might go up for a decade, they might go down for a decade afterwards. It's, you always need to look at the longest trend possible. But ultimately, it's not so much uh, commodity prices that matter because it's uh, what you do with the commodity. So I won't get into the details, but what he argues and what most economists will argue is that a better way to look at the price of a commodity is how much time does it cost you uh, to acquire it. And so if you look at the historical data in that context, what I mean is that, okay, let's look at, let's say, uh, a pound of butter in 1920 or a pound of chicken or a dozen oranges. How much time would you have needed to spend if you had earned the average wage in the United States to buy that stuff compared to the amount of time that you would have needed to spend uh, in 2000, in 2010, in 2015 to, uh, to again, buy uh, a pound of oranges uh, in the American economy. And so in 1920, because I dug up uh, that data, but there's a website that's called humanprogress.org that will give you uh, more, more of these things. You needed to work about an hour if you were an average worker earning an average, uh, an, average rate, an average wage in 1920. You needed to work about an hour to buy a pound of bacon. And today it's about 10 minutes. And that would be a better way of understanding how affordable resources have become in the long run. This would be a much better indicator than uh, commodity prices per se. But I don't think that Ehrlich would have been done enough, would have been uh, dumb enough to take that bait, if you will, and uh, agree to bet on something like that. So Simon went with something that everybody could understood, commodity prices, and took a gamble, knowing 
that the odds waver, but that sometimes uh, it would have lost because, again, commodities are cyclical and many factors affect the price of a particular commodity. But the problem is that these issues are never really discussed when the bet is mentioned. And so Sabin, for example, uh, the historian who wrote that book, or people who will try to defend Ehrlich will never mention that uh, commodities are problematic, but Simon went for the most enticing bait and something that I believe he believed would give him a reasonable chance of winning. And most people can understand commodity prices, but if you start, if you begin talking about you know the amount of time required to pay for a pound of butter in 1920 versus a pound of butter in 2000, uh, people might pay less attention. So, yes, critics are right that commodity prices might not always go down, but for example, at a barrel of oil, we get roughly two times the amount of utility out of it than we did, let's say, a century ago. So while oil prices might not go down, even though they've obviously been going down recently, um, so we live in a, we're taping this in the fall of uh, 2015, the price, oil prices have been going down uh, for a while. This is a great time to be a disciple of Julian Simon, but, you know, if uh, all hell breaks loose in the Middle East next year, I mean, worse than they are, prices might go up again. But the fact is that today we get a lot more out of barrel of oil than we got a century ago. So we actually, in real terms, pay less. But try to convey that in a seven-second soundbite to a broader audience, and this is difficult. So again, um, the fact that Simon framed the bet the way he did was good to try to at least get some people uh, to question some of their basic assumptions, but it was not that he had framed the issue if he had really wanted to... Uh, I think the clock with Ehrlich. Does that make sense, or should I try to expand on this a bit more? No, it makes sense. I mean, um, and that would explain why you know you could anyone could look at some commodity in the future that would go up and and say, oh look, you were you were wrong. So it was, you know, an, an illustration, and certainly the the fact that it even could go down should be a big should should cause a lot of questions because remember this is in the context of Ehrlich saying we're all going to die. You know, yes. We're all going to die from uh, from the lack of the stuff now. Um, so there's this one thing that'll show any given commodity price going up and saying, "Oh, if they just expend, extended the debate, it's it's yes. uh, you know then it, Ehrlich, or then uh, Simon would have lost, and therefore we are finally really running out of the stuff." Blah blah blah. So we've talked about that. There's I've also heard from Holdren in particular a switch in the argument. That is, he says, now he talks about, well, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, well, we're not running out of uh, resources. We're not running out of physical stuff. We're running out of nature. And there's this yeah. whole thing called ecological services. Now, before you get to that, I just want to say, you can't just change your view and not admit that your old one was wrong. Oh, but they do that all the time. They but, keep but moving he, the goalposts. Yeah, yeah, but, but he just, I mean, it's completely bizarre to make these predictions that, and, and you know, publicly bet and say, look, we're going to run out of these materials. And then you don't. And then say, oh, I didn't really mean those. I meant something completely different, yes. which is this vague idea of running out of nature. So tell us about that, that position. Yes. Well, in fairness, Paul's wife in the 1970s, and they do raise that issue. They say, well, on top of running out of everything, uh, we're destroying nature. So what does it matter, for example, if uh, you know, uh, we uh, destroy the environment before we run out of petroleum? And uh, in defense of, uh, no, 
I can't believe I'm actually defending Aldrin. Uh, yeah, they actually said something along those lines in the 1970s. They had this worry that we might actually wreck the environment before we ran out of resources. But that's um, that's something that they, they've been doing for a while. But the argument is uh, they were actually making something of an argument like that before the bet. But and again, that's the sort of the limit of the bets. Uh, basically, Simon wanted to challenge people's preconception and. If nothing else, showing them that non-renewable uh, resources are becoming more of the wrap their head around. But yeah, there have been a couple of answers. Um, before I get to Aldrin, though, I'd just like to talk about uh, the ecological footprint, which was another answer to the bet. Um, if people are not familiar with the ecological footprint, you might still hear uh, every now and then, and National Geographic again did a feature a couple of weeks ago, that we're running out of planet. You know, if everybody on the planet was living like a North American, we would need three more planets to answer, uh, to, um, to provide the resources that we need. And people assume, oh my God, we're running out of resources. What you need to understand about uh, the ecological footprint framework it, is that it was actually created by uh, a Canadian academic at the University of British Columbia and his uh, graduate students. And it so happens that that Canadian academic was in my department uh, about a decade ago. And I sort of pushed him on that. Well, what was the motivation for you to create that ecological footprint telling us that we're running out of planet or that if everybody was living like a North American, uh, we would need three more planets to sustain that uh, standard of living? And he was very candid. It was the fact that early class this bet to Simon. And the joke was that, well, you know, you have a sinking ship and then you have that bet, but we still have a sinking ship and I'm going to prove it. And so I just want to say that when people hear that we're running out of planets or we would need three more planets, this whole framework came as a result of Ehrlich having lost this bet to Simon, which is never mentioned, uh, even in the histories of that, but I got it from the horse's mouth uh, in that case. And so what the ecological footprint is, is in theory the amount of resources that, let's say, uh, Canadians or Singaporeans or whatever uh, would need to sustain their standards of living. And people spontaneously think, well, it must be uh, oil, it must be uh, food, it must be these kinds of things. That's not what it is at all. What really drives the result saying that we would need three more planets um, is the notion that humans should have no impact whatsoever on nature. And because we're uh, burning fossil fuels, we're emitting carbon dioxide emissions, in order to have zero impact on nature, we would need three more forested planets to absorb that CO2. And this is what the ecological footprint is, that is really, really about. Where, is that really where it comes from? That's really what it comes from. And again, I, I have it, uh, that's, um, that, that's what he said. And I mean, uh, I had colleagues who were there who heard him say, yeah, that, that came as a result of finding an answer to the result of the uh, Simon Ehrlich bet. I don't think it's ever been put in writing anywhere, but out of a few hundred witnesses, I don't know if anybody else uh, remember. That, that's what he answered. That's how he answered my question. And that's how uh, he put it to other people. That came from the bet. And so basically, uh, his name is Bill Reese and his PhD student who now runs that well, ecological... I have, a, wait, I have a question. How many planets did the planet need when there was 20 times the amount of CO2? In the uh, but but there were no humans. Now we're talking about human impacts, and you know humans should have no impact whatsoever on the planet. That's really the most. And Bill Reese is, an, is a biologist by training. He's another biologist slash ecologist. But but that's that's exactly it, and that's what people don't understand about the ecological footprint. It's really an energy footprint, 
based on the assumption that people should have no impact on the planet. And so we don't need three more planets. We'll just have higher concentrations of CO2, but that's fine. I mean, we can adapt. We can, uh, we will probably, maybe a little warming is, but you've had other shows on this. I don't want to get into that. But again, you were asking me, well, what were the answers to that bet? Well, the ecological footprint was one answer. And so that's why you still have that notion that we would need three more planets. So basically, the ecological footprint, you are the most sustainable people on Earth. Well, if you live in Haiti, if you live in Bangladesh, if you live in Tanzania, basically, if you don't live long and you're miserable and you're sick, you're sustainable. If you're rich, you're wealthy, you're happy, uh, then you're unsustainable by definition because your lifestyle is based on greater energy consumption and most of our energy is generated from fossil fuels. We emit CO2 and so in order to have uh, zero impact, then we would need three more forested planets. So that's another answer that came out of the, uh, uh, of the uh, Simon and Ehrlich bet. And then the thing that uh, Aldrin, I mean, if you look, at the most quote by uh, Helwig and Aldrin, it's this whole uh, iPad uh, identity. So um, that's not how they called it at first, but today I meaning uh, the impact of humanity on the environment is a function of population, affluence, and technology. And they assume, of course, that technology is bad. Their critics will say, well, no, technology can actually reduce our impact. So, But basically, the more humans you have, the wealthier they are, the more they have an impact on nature, and that's how we're going to run out of nature. But of course, the rejoinder to that is that it's not human population numbers or wealth level that matter, but the technology that they have and how efficiently or inefficiently they use resources. So, for example, people who are old enough to remember the bad old days of the Iron Curtain in Europe and the centralized, centrally planned economies. Well, uh, the Soviet Union, Poland, East Germany, Romania were much poorer uh, per capita uh, than the United States, and yet their environment was a lot more polluted than uh, the environment of the much wealthier uh, Americans. Why was that? Well, because honestly, their uh, uh, the central planning was inefficient, resources were wasted, they did not use, let's say, scrubbing technology on uh, their coal-fired power plants and stuff. So just keeping that example in mind, there is no relationship between population numbers and wealth and impact on the environment. It's the technologies that you have, it's the institutions that you have that will ultimately determine uh, the impact that you have on the environment. But this is, again, completely lost on people like Holdren and Ehrlich because in their mind there is this abstraction, you know, population numbers, levels of wealth. And, of course, the, more, the wealthier they are, the more they must suck up resources out of the environment and the more they must, they must destroy things. But if you look where, for example, the forest cover the world over is making a comeback, it's in advanced economies because we have things like kerosene, like coal, like natural gas, that substitute for wood, uh, farmers are a lot more efficient, so we need a lot less land to grow stuff than slash and burn farmers, uh, subsistence farmers the world over will use land very unproductively and will erode it and will destroy it and will have much more an impact on it than highly efficient farmers in advanced economies who need a lot less land to grow their stuff and so can allow nature to recover and forests to regrow uh, all over advanced economies in Western Europe and North America, uh, New Zealand, and other places. So again, there's no correlation there's level of wealth and environmental impact. But this is again something that Aldrin and Ehrlich don't understand. 
Uh, and why? I don't know. I mean, there are people who can, who can use fancy maths. They should be able to see the evidence. But ultimately, I believe it's their worldview that shapes the way they interpret reality. I agree with that 100%. That's why we love, that's why philosophy is our favorite subject here. Um, all right. Well, so we're, uh, we're nearing the end now in terms of, so is, is there any chance the paper is going to be out by the time of, of the bet? I'm just wondering what listeners can do to uh, spread the word or, you know, something else. Maybe, maybe let's talk about what else, what well, can people I, I, do to educate uh, their fellow resource creators about well, the bet? I'm trying right now to write two short pieces uh, based on this papers, uh, one you know, which I will be submitting to Spike, and usually they like my stuff, so hopefully they'll publish it. And the other, I'm trying, well, uh, I, I will let you know, I'm trying some prominent newspapers, see if they will be interested. And so I will try to distill 20, uh, 23,000 words in about uh, 1,200. So we'll see how that goes, but uh, I'll send you the links as soon as they're published. And hopefully the, the longer version will be published uh, in the coming month or in the coming year. Well, yeah, and, and coming year? Wait, school well, year? Well, you know, I'm an academic. I'll try. Or, I'll try. Uh, you know, I, I, I co-authored it with a, young, uh, with a young academic. You know, if it was me, I'll just send it to an open access journal. I can afford to do that now, but I have a younger co-author, and, you know, well, academia works. So I've got to get it in a good journal for its sake. Well, it's good that there's another Canadian saying true things. Well, what can I say? Uh, well, great. Well, Pierre, uh, thanks as always for coming on. We're going to actually, listeners will probably find out about this for the first time. Maybe I mentioned it last week, but we're going to start, uh, I'm going to start writing op-eds based on these power hours. So at the very least, I'm not an academic, so it will come out on time. Uh, so we'll have something. Thank you for not being an academic, Alex. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I know, yeah, it's too bad I can't have that doctor title. It's, it's, it's so, it would be such a thrill. But anyway, the, uh, yeah, so we're going to bring that out by the anniversary of the bet. So at the very least, uh, we'll have that content and uh, I'll link to this. But it is a crucial issue. So uh, thanks so much for, uh, for being on and for all of your work in general. Anytime. Thanks again to Pierre Durocher for being on the show. We'll wrap up quickly this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Um, please rate the show on iTunes, spread the word. Uh, I'm seeing we're getting more and more listeners, uh, particularly since we've gone back to weekly. So please keep that coming. I, I hear a lot of good feedback about the show. So uh, that's great. And, and I think it's, it's a good way to think about these issues, to learn about these issues. So please spread that around. Uh, also, uh, you can find us on Facebook, whether it's Alex Epstein, I Love Fossil Fuels, I Love Nuclear, or Center for Industrial Progress. You can find all of those on Facebook and on Twitter. And make sure to sign up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. And most importantly, in my mind, make sure you check out The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Buy a copy for yourself and or for friends, students, teachers, etc. that you know. All right, next week we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.